So I hope you'll turn with me uh, in the book of Luke to chapter 8 as we take a look at a very familiar passage in, in the Gospels. But Luke chapter 8, and this is the parable of the sower. I've actually, you know, taught this before uh, or taught from this passage before. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I've taught from Matthew before, and it's uh, always interesting when the Bible repeats itself, which is not frequently, but occasionally you'll give the same story, the same event through different eyewitness accounts, and it's always interesting to compare the details between the different accounts, because obviously they don't collude together. They weren't just copying off a, a, a superscript. They were all writing as the Holy Spirit inspired them what, th what he brought to their mind or what they had, in the case of Luke, gained from interviewing other eyewitnesses, because we don't believe that Luke was actually an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus, but he was a very careful historian and lover of the gospel, and he, he recounted some details that aren't even found in Mark and Matthew when we read the, this, this parable. Um, and before we, we do that, you're in Luke chapter 8. I wanted to read a couple of things that kind of uh, are bookends to the parable in Matthew. Uh, he says in Matthew 12, 35, a good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. So I want you to think about that. Everyone has a storehouse, a storeroom, and out of that is coming forth the fruit, the evidence of what is in your heart. So a good person brings forth good things, right? It's very simple, but these are things that, that really we are going to lay a foundation for to go deep. If you read at the end of that same passage in Matthew thirteen fifty two. Jesus concludes a sequence of parables, and some of which he explained, others which he just left there for the interpretation to kind of come to us as we seek and meditate on it. But after giving several parables in Matthew thirteen fifty two, Jesus said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. You, you may have heard that. It's just a one-sentence, one-off, and then he goes on. And... It's, it's very thought-provoking. What does that mean there? It says every teacher of the law. It says in some of your translations in Matthew thirteen fifty-two, scribe. But that was a teacher of the law who has become a disciple or trained up in the kingdom of heaven. This is what our church is really beginning to encourage one another in is discipleship. If you have become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven... This is what you have. You have a storehouse, and you're like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and treasures old. Okay, And I think that should be obvious to us that Jesus was, was uh, portraying or speaking forward towards the new covenant. That not just the scribes who had the Old Testament memorized, but those that had then gone on to become disciples of Jesus Christ were going to not just bring out old covenant truths, but new covenant truths. And they weren't just going to leave behind the old covenant when they came to the new and say there's no point in bringing this out anymore. They all have their place. They all have their value, and, the, and, and they're all treasures that are so priceless that, you know, we as stewards of these households, or these, these storehouses that God has given us, are given the responsibility as we minister to one another, as we seek the Lord, as we uh, go out into the world, to use the treasures wisely and to seek the Lord for what should we bring out today. Should we bring out something from the old or something from the new? Should we pray? Should we witness? Should we be silent? Should we uh, you know, correct in love? All these things are applicable to this parable in Luke chapter 8 because in it, 
You might ask, well, what's the point of the parable of the sower of the seed? Jesus starts out in chapter 8. I'm not going to have to read every verse, but, you know, he's just talking to the crowds here of Jews. And he's saying there was this sower that went out and he scattered some seed on the very hard, compacted ground. And the birds come and they take it right away. It never gets into the soil, never germinates. Then he also throws some seed into the soil that is uh, very shallow. In other words, it might be like where you have an old concrete pad for years and years ago, but it's been neglected, it's been broken up, and now the weeds and the soil has kind of reclaimed the top of that. So you see things growing, but if you were to like take a shovel into it, you'd realize, hey, there's actually concrete under here, but I didn't see that. It was soil on top of it, no depth to it. He says some of the seeds falls in that kind of a place, and it shoots up quickly, but the sun withers it away because there's no roots and there's no way for it to go out and get the, the water and the nutrients it needs. There's a third type of example. Jesus says, so then he throws some soil or some seed and he throws it into a very uh, weedy area. So the plant does come up and there's potential there for the roots to go down, but there's so much competition you know, that it gets choked out and it never brings forth good fruit. And then finally, there's the fourth type, which is the soil that any good gardener would, would, would work up before he plants a seed. And it goes into it, and it brings forth life, 30, 60, 100-fold. Okay, and uh, as some of you know, I grow food for a living, so this, is, this particular passage has become very personal to me as I've studied how things actually work in real life. It was probably very personal to almost all the hearers of Jesus, so I, that's why I would use agricultural terminology. But we lose that today in our society, right? Because most of us, like me, didn't grow up around food. We had no idea how it got to the f- supermarket. And if we tried to do it in our backyard, you know, we might just take, oh, I'm just going to save a seed from this pepper. And I'm going to, everyone ever done that? I'm going to take a, a seed from this squash that I really like, and I'm just going to I don't have to go to the store anymore. I'm just going to plant it in my backyard, and I'll have my own food. So you try that, and maybe you don't know any better, and you just put in a little patch of, of grass or weeds or a little flower bed there, and you stick it in there, and then you're looking, you're watering it, you're saying, is it ever going to come up? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, and it might come up, but it's real scraggly. Of course, the weeds around are growing so much faster, and you're like, well, this is hard. This is never going to work. Obviously, I can't just take a seed out of a supermarket vegetable, put it in the ground, and get a crop. You know, I've got to study this out and learn, how does this work? so that we can actually grow things besides weeds. Um, well, in chapter 8, he explains the parable. I want to read the interpretation and then talk to you a little bit about the soil. In fact, if you just read through it, you see the, the critical thing is the soil. That's the only difference between the four examples. Okay, The word is the same. It's the word of God is going out. He's going to explain that in verse 9. He says, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others they are in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And this was something that Isaiah had also prophesied, that they would see the miracles of the Messiah firsthand, the Jews, and they would not understand. They would not believe him. They would hear his, his, his preaching and they would say, wow, this man preaches with authority, but they really wouldn't listen. They wouldn't believe and they wouldn't understand it. And it was, in a sense, a judicial blinding that was going on to Israel in that time because they were going to reject Jesus, the Messiah. Um, and he gave them that opportunity to receive him, but he came to his own, his own did not receive him. He gave them over to their blindness, and he began more and more to only speak in parables so that the general population would just hear these nice, pithy sayings, but they wouldn't have any spiritual uh, understanding of it. 
but those that wanted to know more, those that had already you know, entered into the light that Jesus had shown them, they said, oh, wow, you are the Son of God. No one has ever done anything like you. You know, even like Nicodemus coming by night to Jesus, he was afraid, but he came, he wanted to know more. How do you do these things? Jesus would open up to him the depths of the treasures of heaven, talking about being born again. But in this case, they had to come to him afterwards, and he said, look, it's been given to you. It's not given to everybody, okay, in Israel. Because by the blinding of Israel, the judicial blinding of Israel for a season, God opened up the gospel to the whole world so that we, Gentiles, would then have the opportunity to come in to the same kingdom that Israel rejected when it was in her midst. So that's the excitement of all this, that Jesus had a purpose in talking in parables and withholding just the, the, the full revelation. But let us enter into this now. We don't have to talk in parables. We don't have to, to, to uh, minister to one another in dark saints. We can speak the full revelation of who Jesus is. The parable is this, it says in verse 11 of Luke 8. The seed is the word of God. There you go. Seed is the word of God. Then the ones along the path are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience." And then pay attention to the, the next verses. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has more will be given, to the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. I see a connection between verses 16 and 17. And the explanation of the parable. You see, Jesus is wanting us who are already in the kingdom as his ambassadors, as his servants to the larger world out there. To understand that just because we take a good gospel message, just because we have the word of God and we go out in truth and sow it uh, widely, sow it without sparing it, and we just give it away to whoever we meet, we're not going to always have good results. We're not going to always see the desire of our hearts for other people to turn to the Lord and be saved. And he says, but nevertheless, you have this light. Don't let the light be hidden in you, okay? Because you get discouraged or you get pushed back or the cares of this world come into you. If you are one that is of good soil, if you are one who has heard the word and is holding it fast and is bearing fruit, then you're not going to keep it undercover okay you're going to share it abroad and you're going to allow those things that are hidden to come to light one of the things that the lord's put, been putting on my heart ever since i started really studying this passage deeply was the question is there anything that can be done about the soil because you have the four types of people here they all get the same say they all get the same word of god they all get the same light from heaven but the response is different based upon the soil or based upon which is their heart the, the kind of conditions that their heart is found in. Well, is there anything that can be done about that condition of a person? 
Are we all born in one of those four categories? As maybe some in our Calvinist camp would, would say, you're either already judicially hardened from birth, you're reprobate, you're never going to believe, you can't believe, it's impossible for you to follow God because God has already elected you not to be. Or you're already predetermined to follow God. And I believe in predestination, but maybe not this version of it. You know, you've already been chosen for eternal life and God has already saved you and then you start following him and believing you. And there's nothing you can do to not believe. So that's only two places. Here we see, obviously, there's, there's more than that. And the good thing about soil is it's not an irreversible condition. It's not a stagnant or static state that it exists in. Soil changes. Soil can be improved and soil can get worse. Okay? Hearts can change. Hearts can be changed for the better and hearts can be made worse. What happened, do you think, to that first example the the soil on the path did it always exist that way no it required constant pressure people walking on it and trampling on it and the seed comes and the birds take it away and it has no ability to bring forth life because of the hardening that's going on and on and on you see that happening in people they don't start off life that way but circumstances happen to them and then they have an opportunity to respond to god in those hard times to repent, to turn to Him, to soften their hearts, to forgive, to acknowledge their wrong, or they can harden their heart, push people away, become self-righteous, become angry and bitter, and turn away from God. And as that happens, the heart becomes harder and harder. You all know the story of Pharaoh in the Exodus and how God hardened his heart. We all know that, that testimony that he, he brought Pharaoh to a point of absolute insanity so that the children of Israel would, would be able to, to leave out of Egypt. But if you read it carefully, God was not the one that started hardening Pharaoh's heart. He predicted that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart and that he was going to continue to do it to the point that he'd let the children of Israel go. But Pharaoh hardened his heart the first few times himself. Then God said, I'm going to work with you in this. You already resist me. You've already rejected the light that I've given you. So I'm going to turn you over into more blindness. And he works with him and hardens his heart even more. It's a fearful thing to think that God can harden people's hearts and give them over to a reprobate mind. Give them over to what they desire if they desire to reject God and have nothing to do with him. They'll regret it in eternity. But he's able to do that. But that's not his desire. His, his desire, of course, in that specific situation was to let the children of Israel go free. So there was a greater benefit to turning a man over to a hardened heart. But in general, God wants to work that soil over and over again, do everything he can to bring it to a better state. And I see in this parable, there's not just God who's responsible for the heart. Yes, he is. Yes, he is the one that can change hearts. Yes, he is the one that can work on people's hearts and, and open their hearts and harden their hearts. He has access to our hearts. We don't have access to each other's hearts. We only have our own heart that we can really do something about. But at the same time, I think we can affect the hearts of those around us. So I see three people in the life here that are very important. Well, it's not just the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, of course. I do see God as one. And then I see the sower who could be you and me going out there, we actually can do something about the condition of the soil. Any gardener or farmer worth his salt is not just going to go out and start wasting seed on poor ground. He's going to work the ground, okay? And then, the, of course, the final person is the sinner themselves, the person that is receiving the seed or is being exposed to the grace of God. What is their response to it? They can do something about their heart, and we as believers can do something about our heart right now as well. 
And that's why it's so good to reflect on this and consider that just because you may have been born again 30 years ago, just because you've been coming to church your whole life, doesn't mean you're in the final category where you have a good heart, a good soil, and where the Word of God goes in and settles and you're producing uh, 3,000, 6,000, 10,000 percentage yields. That's what that means. It's 30, 60, 100 fold is, is, is a lot. And not every Christian, obviously, in every stage of their life is there because things enter into the heart and choke it out. But let's take a close look at this here. If there's something that we can do as the worker of the ground, um, we'll say that God is the husbandman, right? God is the farmer. He owns the, the field and the land. So ultimately, he's the one that can bring forth the life and the harvest. But you're a worker. You're the one scattering the, the seed maybe one day. Maybe you're out there a day laborer. You're, you're coming behind and watering it. Maybe you're plowing the ground. Uh, maybe you're harrying in the seed. You're pulling the weeds. Okay, there's a lot of work to be done. And the farmer that owns it is not going to be the one out there doing that every day. He's going to hire people in there to do it, maybe for a season. Maybe you have access to somebody's life for a season, and you're able to pour into them, speak the word of God, disciple them. And they're not even saved yet, but you're working on their heart and sowing the word of God, not knowing when this might be the day that life comes forth, okay? And you might be someone that just in passing throws a little seed or throws a little water on someone else's seed that has gone in their life, and you never see them again. Okay, the guy hired you for one day, just like that parable where Jesus saw the, said there were people standing around, and he hired some for 12 hours, and some gave him one hour, and he paid them all the same. But that may have been it. They may never have gone back again, and you may never see that person again. But if you're working, what you can do about the soil is very important to consider. Um, I think much of Christianity today results in the second example here, which is the seed that goes into the soil, but it falls upon like a rock. And it says in verse 13, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But they have no root, and they believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. How often do we see that these days? And it's, it's, it's discouraging, it's frustrating. You want to follow up and pull them back and get them to, to, to understand. And it seems very interesting that he says these are the ones that they, they hear the gospel or they hear the word of God, and they receive it with joy. You think that's wonderful. Oh, that there'll be more people when we go out to LSU that we come and we preach the good news and they receive it with joy. And we, and we do encounter people that are happy to see us and they are thankful to receive the testimony bags or have a conversation about Jesus. And it's almost as though that's not really the response of a true conversion. A true conversion oftentimes is one of brokenness, is one of sadness, is one of repentance and sorrow over the sin that we have committed in our lives. Over the consequences, not only you know, that we're going to face now, but that we have brought into other people's lives. Over the, the heartache that we have caused God. Over the rebellion. Over the things that Jesus had to suffer just to redeem us and to make us able to enter into heaven. You know, there's reflection on all of that. And when a person really sees their state before God and their sinfulness... And they repent, oftentimes with tears. That root has gone down deeply because, you see, the heart is broken at that point. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There is a comfort and there is a joy that comes when true salvation has entered into the heart. But sometimes it's not even immediate. Sometimes there's that, that reflection that breaks the heart. And it's that broken soil 
that allows the seed to go down and the roots to travel deeply. And I don't want to rush that in somebody that is seeking the Lord or considering the claims of Christianity. I don't want to rush them into a quick decision and say, just say this prayer and you'll have eternal, you have, you know, you have, you're going to heaven when you die and God's forgiven all your sins and no matter what you do, you're good, right? You're, you're saved. But rather, we see people that fall away because after they've been sold that bill of goods, they face persecution, maybe, for their Christian faith. They start telling their friends and their families, oh, I found Jesus, this is great, I love going to church, I love my friends, and I love the uh, freedom that I have in my life, and, and, they, and they start facing pushback and questions about, why do you, well, what about this, and, and don't you uh, want to do this with us anymore, and are you holier than us, and, you know, and, and the persecution or the offenses stumble them. And they say, I, I, I don't like this. This wasn't what I, so, I signed up for. I thought things were going to get better. And it said things are harder now for me. And, and they, they fall away. And these are the ones you won't see again in church. But the third group, the third group, on the other hand, it says in verse 14, those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. And they go on their way and they're choked. And the, and the implication is you read the different uh, passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that these are the ones that hear repeatedly. They come and they sit and they listen to the word of God and they rather like it. And there's actually a little bit of life that springs up, okay? It's, it's, it's just that there's no good fruit. It's that little seed that you put out in your backyard, and you see it sprout up. And it may even realize, hey, winter is coming, and it pushes ahead to making some kind of a little scrawny fruit or something. But you're like, oh, I can't eat this. This is terrible because the, the whole desire of the plant is to regenerate itself. So it's going to rush ahead, try to produce that flower, that seed, that fruit, and drop it to scatter it. But it's not good. It doesn't bring forth any good fruit that matures. And, we, it, you know, this is honestly the case of many people in our churches today. They do hear the word. They do believe it. But they don't actually bear fruit. Why is it? It says it very clearly there. The cares, the riches, and the pleasures of this life are choking it out. So once again, the problem is with the soil. The soil was not properly tilled up. There was a desire to follow Jesus. There was a realization, I need my sins forgiven. And I need to go the, the new direction and repent and turn to God. But it was not a surrender in that, that I'm going to surrender my whole world, my whole life, my future, all my plans, everything in my heart is now yours, Lord. Come and take full access. Enter in. Do what you will, Lord. It's worth it to follow you into the kingdom of God rather than to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Because in that state, maybe they will go to heaven, maybe they won't. I don't know. It's not really the point of the parable. All the parable does say about those that are going to heaven is in verse 12 it says that the devil comes and takes the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved so it's it's very clear that he's talking about being saved in the context of this parable and that believing is critical to being saved but is believing alone all that jesus is asking of us or is he not in this parable warning us that it requires really a heart that is surrendered to him in believing the gospel and the claims of it if you truly believe who Jesus is and what he's done and what he can do in you, then you're going to want to give everything to him and get all the junk out. And this is a process of sanctification. But I feel like that third group is almost those that are just stopped. They've said, I've got to continue in this worldly activity, in this business proposition. I've got to continue in this relationship 
and it's going to cost me too much to give it up. I know the Lord's dealing with me, but I said no to him, and the Lord, being a gentleman, will allow them to continue there, bearing no fruit. And they say, one day, one day, one day, Lord, I'll get right with you. One day I'll surrender fully. One day I'll commit to following you and be full of the Spirit and letting go of these things. But not now, Lord, not now, not today. Me first, Lord. Remember the example of the, in Luke 14 when the people were coming to Jesus or Jesus was calling them to follow him. But every single one of them said, let me first, Lord. Let me go bury my dead. Let me first go take care of this. And that's the problem, is that if me is first, then, then Jesus obviously isn't, and the fruit will not mature. But those that are in a good soil, it says in verse 50, are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart. How did we get to an honest and good heart? That's the thought. Well, if I have a very compacted soil in, in, my, uh, in my farm, okay, and I want to prepare it organically, right? I don't want to use the shortcuts that chemical farmers have introduced that are creating a lot of toxins and problems. I want to use natural methods as much as I can, ones that will produce a healthy environment, but I also want to get rid of the weeds that are currently growing. You've got Louisiana compacted soil, gets pounded by rain, uh, throughout the summer, it, it doesn't have a lot of nutrients that are being replenished. Um, so this is soil that's not going to grow a good crop. First thing you got to do, though, is get rid of what is growing, which is grass or weeds. And so we can solarize it. Basically, you can lay a tarp, a black tarp, clear plastic on it, and that will kill off the top layer of what is growing there. And you're not having to spray it with Roundup. You're not having to go in there and dig and dig and dig. You're not tilling either. And, uh, you know, many of you would say, I'll just get my tiller out, my rototiller, and flip it. And the problem with that is that's kind of another way that I would say is not the best way to sow the seed. If you're going to till your ground deeply and go back and do that several times a year every time you have a new crop or whatever you need to get rid of the weeds, what you're actually doing is, yes, you are creating a soft uh, topsoil momentarily, and you're flipping that grass underneath it where it's going to die. But you're destroying the structure of the soil, number one, so it's going to lose a lot of minerals and nutrients, have no viability, have no life in the soil as far as the fungi, the protozoa, the earthworms. Their community is already established, and you want to use that community. You just want to get rid of the grass. But by tilling, we flip it all up. We kill most of that. And then, even worse, we create a hard pan is what it's called. If your tiller goes down eight inches, you have eight inches of topsoil, but underneath that you have a very compacted hard layer of soil now that the roots of the plant you're going to put in there are not going to be able to penetrate. And that's what happens when we till over and over again. We make kind of a dusty topsoil, and then underneath there it becomes very hard, and the plants struggle to survive. So you have to use all kinds of additives and fertilizers just to keep them alive. Does that make sense? So that's why a lot of farmers such as us are getting away from tilling, and we're trying to use other passive methods to get the soil ready. So what would we do if, say, we, we burned off the top layer with solarization, and then we wanted to grow a plant there? Well, we would grow cover crops. And I love this idea because there is some seed that you can put into a hard ground, and you can water it, and it'll germinate, and it will go down further than it goes up. There's, there's a type of radish called a tillage radish. Some of you may be familiar with daikon radishes. These long, white, Asian radishes. Not like the little red ones you buy in the store. But these things have roots that can go down for several feet. And they're amazing. They break through the hardened soil. And they allow the ground to just naturally be softened and broken up by the organic matter that is settling there. And you just allow the top to grow. It's a little green, leafy vegetable. But underneath there, if you give it the time to actually live its full life and then die and rot in the soil, what you'll find the next season when you come back is that's, that ground is softened up. 
by the, the cover crop of tillage radishes and other, gr uh, other grains and other things that you could grow in there. And we do a lot of that to rotate. Even the Bible talks about every seven years they were supposed to allow their, their, their soils to rest. So, and what you do in that rest is you don't just let weeds come up. You actually put in seeds of something you're not going to harvest for food, but you're going to allow it to break up the soil. And so we can go out there and sow certain seeds that will penetrate the heart in such a way that it begins to break up, even if it's a hard heart. See, a, a, a seared conscience and a hard heart is not a hopeless case. If you, if you sear uh, a steak or something, right, you'd have a crispy, hardened top. But if you cut it with a knife, what's underneath that seared top? A soft, tender, right, inside. And oftentimes, that's what we find with people that have seared consciences. They have an exterior shell of hardness, but yet if you love them and you deal with them patiently and you pray about how can I reach them, there are certain seeds that will get through to their heart and begin to open up. There's a tender part that has been maybe hurt and maybe abused, and they don't want to allow it to have that access to anyone else again. What is it, though, that we can use that will actually help somebody? Well, that's where you and I, as stewards of a storehouse of treasures, need to be wise about what we use as far as the Word of God. The Word of God is a, is a big collection of 66 books. And, you know, what do I do? Do I, do I start someone in Genesis chapter 1? Do I tell them about the Ten Commandments? Do I go to Romans chapter 3 and tell them that, you know, take them through the Romans road? I mean, how, how do I take, I have all these treasures, some are old, some are new. How do I get into someone's life? Well, you, you don't know until you find out, right? I mean, it's obvious. You need to know who are they. I like to just spend time talking with people about themselves, which is their favorite topic. Because what I'm doing is praying, God, okay, where are they coming from? What do they really believe? And how can I relate to them? Because you don't want to just burn a bridge right away. You want to actually connect a bridge somehow. Maybe it's through something you've done in your secular life. Is it called secular life? You know, in your, in, in your past, that you can connect with someone else where they are, what they enjoy. And you build a bridge. But that bridge is simply there to bring the gospel into their hearts, to break down the walls that relationships can build. Now, I can build a bridge in two or three minutes with somebody. It doesn't take years of building a friendship before, I, oh, I, I should tell you I'm a Christian, and uh, I want to tell you what happens when we die. And uh, you, know, you can do that very quickly if you're intentional about it, and you're interested in the person, they can see your genuine love and concern for them. Um, but oftentimes, what I find in our society is that we have people that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of all, because they are, in a sense, trusting in their own works, trusting in their goodness. Maybe they've been raised in church, but the gospel has never really gotten through to them. There's a blindness about what Jesus actually did at the cross. There's not really an appreciation. Oh, he died for my sins. Yes, I know that. Now I'm going to do my part to get to heaven. And, and there's this disconnect that it's, it's, it's like a hard shell. You can't get through it just throwing more word at them. They know they've heard the word. They've got to get through by certain seeds. And I like the idea of what Spurgeon talked about. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of, of preachers. This is what he said in the 1880s. So you think about this, it, it sounds like it could be written today, but uh, he, he wrote, he preached this, Charles Spurgeon said, much of the preaching of the present day tends to harden the hearts of men against the gospel. They're excused in their sins, they're taught to question the inspiration of the scriptures, they're led to doubt whether after all sin will bring the eternal punishment which our Lord plainly revealed. Oh, it is a sad, sad thing when all this traffic of things good, bad, and indifferent has gone over a man's soul till it becomes harder than the nether millstone. 
And then he goes on to talk about that first soil, why it was so compacted. He says another reason why this soil was so uncongenial is that it was totally unprepared for the seed. There had been no plowing before the seed was sown, no harrowing afterwards. He that sows without a plow may reap without a sickle. I love that expression there. I don't, I don't even know what those are, really, I mean, because we don't use those expressions in farming, but you look it up. Of course you know what it is. A plow is the thing that you, you break up the soil, and the sickle is how you would harvest and bring in the harvest. He says, you're not going to have anything to reap. He who preaches the gospel without preaching the law may hold all the results of it in his hand, and there will be little for him to hold. So Spurgeon starts giving us insight into what he, as a tremendous soul winner, a Holy Spirit, I believe, filled individual that saw miracles in his ministry in London and, and saw thousands upon thousands come to know Christ, he said the key for him to break up a hard soil was to preach the law. Now, this is very tricky because we know in this church that law is not the way to live as a Christian. Lee has been preaching the New Covenant, a, a series on it, the last few weeks, and the the, the stumbling block for so many of us is that we seek to follow God. We want to be holy with all our hearts. We want to do what is right, but we attempt to do it through self-will, through seeing the commandment and saying, I'm going to do that now, and then we get disappointed with ourselves and exasperated when we fail. And God was saying, look, you could never do it in the first place. In fact, I'm not satisfied with you fulfilling the righteous letter of the law. I want the righteousness of the law to be fulfilled in your heart. And I'm going to write it on your heart and on your mind. And I'm going to do it through you if you'll turn to me in dependence and trust and walk under grace and not under law. Because when you walk under law, the promise in 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear. It will revive or stir up sin. It gives strength to your sinful nature. And so when we have the law in our hands, we have to be very careful how we're using it. And uh, Paul talks about, I think, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that the law is good when it's used lawfully. But it was not made for the righteous. It was made for the unrighteous. And he makes a long list of all the people that, and, and any other thing that doesn't lead to sound doctrine. Basically, anyone that's, that's not regenerated, the law is useful for them. But you have to learn how to use it lawfully. Okay, it's really to bring people to Christ. That's what it was in Galatians chapter 3. It was a tutor to bring us to Christ. Not to teach us how to walk like Christ, because Christ began to open up the spiritual meaning of the law. The righteousness of the law is much deeper than the letter of the law. So in your heart, he wants you to not just not murder people. He wants you to not hate, not be angry with your brother anymore. He doesn't just want you to not commit adultery. He wants you to stop lusting in your heart. He wants you to begin to love people and to pray for those that despitefully use you. These were things the old covenant never demanded of the saints of, of God in, in, in Israel because it couldn't bring it about. The law could not produce that. But now grace can. But in order to get someone to see their need for grace and their need for a Savior, the law is a wonderful seed to break into that heart. Spurgeon uh, quotes another pastor, and it says, When he preached in the streets of Edinburgh, that's in Scotland, he used to say, You must preach the law, for the gospel is a silken thread, but you cannot get it into the hearts of men unless you have made a way for it with the sharp needle. The sharp needle of the law will pull the silken thread of the gospel after it. You know, it's, 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 a, it's one of those beautiful analogies like only the British could say. And yet, you know, I say, what does it mean? How does that work practically for me? Well, Spurgeon goes on to say, there must be plowing before there is sowing if there is to be reaping after the sowing. So in this case, in this case of this first example, he says, there was no harrowing after the sowing. Now, harrowing is like... in. 
It means different things today in our culture than maybe it meant back in the 19th century. But what Spurgeon was referring to was after you'd sow the seed on the ground, you would then mix it in the topsoil. Okay, you didn't want to just leave it exposed to anything that could come along, like the birds. They'll come along, they'll take the seed away if they see it there. You mix it in the topsoil, you water it in, the harrow would come along and do that job for you after you had plowed it and sowed it. So he says, in this case, there was no harrowing. And that is a very important part of the work, to go over the ground again to get the seed well into the soil. So we might talk to someone again if we have the opportunity, follow up with them and begin to explain further the things of the kingdom of God. Uh, he says, I like prayer meetings that harrow in the seed and private prayer, that secret study of the word, that private crying unto God after the seed has been sown, that he would be pleased to cover it up and keep it in the soil and make it ready for the harvest. But with no plowing before the sowing and no harrowing afterwards, what result can you expect? Wow, it's very convicting to me that I would love to just go out there and just see people respond joyfully to John 3.16 or the Romans Road or, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the message of Jesus' resurrection. But to see them respond joyfully for a time and then as soon as the persecution comes, the offenses come, the temptations of life and they fall away. This is not good. This actually produces a harder heart at that point in their life. I tried Christianity. It didn't work. Oh, I was around those Christians. They're a bunch of hypocrites. You know what they said about me? You know what they said to me? They hurt me. And they walk away because they weren't told that in the kingdom of God, you're going to suffer tribulation. You're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to learn to take up the yoke of Christ. You cannot do this yourself. And you have to realize that your sins are preparing a day of judgment for yourself. There is a day of wrath for every man, woman, boy, and girl that does not repent and turn to Jesus Christ. And though that's an unpopular message, and though hell is something you rarely hear from many pulpits, it is the reality. If it is true, then how can we stand by knowing this and knowing we've been spared from that day and refuse to tell it to people, refuse to share the light, put a, put a, a, a lamp covering over it or whatever it says there, a bushel, you know, cover it up. You have your light here and you put it under your bed because you don't want anyone to be offended by it. No, we've got to go out and take the light once it's been revealed to us. And in this case, that is perhaps the reason why so many people do not continue on to the good soil. The soil wasn't prepared. So I found that speaking the truth in love, if you're using the law, you've got to speak it with love. Smile. Listen, be patient. Never use it as a hammer over the head, but use it as someone who myself has failed God. I have broken the commandments of God. I deserve his wrath. I'm no better than you, but I am in a better position if you don't realize that you can't get there by good works. And so we began to speak this truth in love and, and ask them, have you, have you followed God's commandments? Are you doing the things that you know in your conscience are right and are worthy of your life? Are you really keeping them? Are you really following those commandments? And no one is, of course, if they're honest with you. They're going to say no. And that's why he says there, the good uh, soil is the person that had an honest and good heart. It's in Luke chapter 8, verse 15. Some of your translations may say a noble and good heart, but an honest and good heart. This is a genuine heart. It doesn't mean they're a good person in the sense of righteousness. There are none that are righteous in and of themselves. But it does mean you can have a heart that is broken and humbled and ready to hear the gospel and fully surrender to it because you have received the love of the truth. You know that's a, a, a statement about the last days in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. 
that there are going to be people that are going to hear the truth and they will not receive the love of the truth. And God is going to give them over to a deluding spirit, it says in the last days, so they're going to believe the lie, the lie of the, the false antichrist system. Because they have an opportunity to believe the truth. What does that mean? The truth about um, the President of the United States, the truth about the World Economic Forum. The t- no, he's talking about the truth about you. You did not receive the truth about your own heart, about your own life, about your own sins about your own destiny before God. And you hardened, you rejected it. Whereas if you had come with a good and humble and genuine heart saying, I am a wretched sinner, I know I need the salvation, God will open up the light of all that he has for you. He'll give you a storehouse of treasures and he'll enter, bring you into the kingdom of God. Suddenly your, your eyes are open to seeing your Savior Jesus and everything changes. All things are made new. I want to finish by talking about the third person in this parable here. We had God, the owner of the field. We had the worker, the laborer, and how we can uh, wisely use the seed uh, that is necessary and best for that season of life, for that person's soil. And then finally, what is the call to us, the people that are hearing the word of God? And maybe our hearts are not producing fruit. Look in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 4, please. I'm going to do two final scriptures out of the storehouse of the old. Okay? Because these are so appropriate for today. Just one verse in each, each chapter. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 3. Thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. Do you realize that any Jew or scribe or Pharisee or probably anyone that heard the word of the Lord uh, commonly back in the days of Jesus would have associated this parable that he was teaching with the sayings of Jeremiah here. To break up the fallow ground of your heart and do not sow among the thorns okay to those that are you got to work on it and and this is now the call to us and one more verse it's in hosea chapter 10 and i want you to ask yourself is god speaking to me this this word right here hosea chapter 10 verse 12 he says sow for yourselves righteousness Reap steadfast love. Break up the unplowed ground for yourself. For it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Another version says that He may come and shower you with deliverance. It is time to seek the Lord. To break up the fallow ground of your heart. To remove the weeds that are choking out the fruit. I don't know what they are in your life. I can only say what they might be in my life. I don't even know my own heart. It's desperately wicked. It's deceitful. That's what Jeremiah says. And who can know it? But God, who searches the hearts. If you come to him like the psalmist said, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Is he going to turn away such a person like that? No, I think he longs to have people that will seek him. And ask him to show them. Just show me, Lord. He's not going to show you something that's going to cause you to fall away in horror of your own wicked. He knows what we can bear and what we can't. He knows what's necessary for this season. And I don't. So I could come and tell you maybe there's something in your life that I think you need to fix. But God, the Holy Spirit, knows what is in your life that he can fix. And he can show you if you allow him. But you have to receive the love of the truth. And when God comes to us with a word like this, and I've been letting him just open up my heart and show me, Lord, where's the ground hardened? 
Where are there weeds in there that need to be pulled up? Where is there a hard uh, rock that needs to be dug out so that the, the roots can go down deeply, Lord? It is time to seek the Lord. He wants to come and rain righteousness upon you. It is time to sow for yourself righteousness. If you sow the righteous word of God into your own lives, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and, and preaching to yourself, even when you're in your car, okay, telling yourself, reminding yourself of these things, you sow in righteousness. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So it's never in vain. Even if you go out and you witness your neighbor and they just like turn their back on you and they cut you off in mid-sentence, it was not in vain that the word of God went out. Because your faith, if you allow it, your faith has increased in that moment. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. And it doesn't return vain either. That may drop on a hard soil, but it may sit there for a little while. There may be someone else that follows it up the next day, begins to break it open. Water may come from some other source. And then the life sprouts up, which only God can give. He gives the increase. But we're nobodies. We're just water. One man waters, one man soils. Wherever you are in your life, you have the opportunity to do this. And like Spurgeon said, don't forget the prayer. Don't forget the harrowing in the soil. Okay? Even when they're, they're not in your presence, you can't talk to them. You don't even know where they are. You can pray and continue to chase them down with the hound of heaven. And will follow them wherever they are. Deal with their hearts. And if they're willing to come, ultimately, it's going to be about them. If they're not willing, that's their responsibility. If they are willing, they're going to enter into the kingdom of God. And you have won yourself a brother, a sister for eternity. It's a great life. Sometimes the reason we don't do this is because our hearts are already so heavy and burdened and cluttered up with things that need to be removed. So let this minister to you, whoever wants to come up and play. It, it, it may be a message from any of those perspectives. I know it has been for me this week, but I hope it's an encouragement to you that as a born-again child of God, God has given you a storehouse full of treasures, old and new, Read the full counsel of the Word of God. Learn how to skillfully use it as you speak to others. And always, always speak the truth in love. Love those you're talking to. If you don't, get alone and get your own heart right first. Then you'll be of great use to the kingdom of God. Amen. Father, I thank you that we have heard so many wonderful things from this pulpit over the years, Lord, about your grace about the way that you deliver us, save us, sanctify us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, and lead us in a step-by-step walk with your Son, Jesus. And I magnify your grace today, Lord. I thank you that we can receive these pearls, these precious truths, Lord God. There was a time in my life when I could not receive it, when... I would have trampled on it like a dog, Lord. I would have devoured it. And that's why you said, don't cast your pearls before swine. I wasn't ready for it. I needed to receive the seed that would break up my heart, pull out those weeds, and ruin the life that I had set out on with all my heart and exchange it for the life that you wanted me to have. And I thank you that in doing that, you have now called me and all of these saints in here to go out and reach others for the kingdom of God, to invite them into this kingdom, invite them to follow the one that can give them a new heart, give them a better life, not a life down here, but a life forever with you where you are. And I praise you, Father.